The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Today we're talking about baby Isaac, but for a minute, I want to talk about another baby. Just for a minute. Now, how many of you all know who that is, who or what that is? Some are like, whose cat is that? <laughs> but this is what's called Baby Yoda in this new show, Star Wars spinoff show called The Mandalorian. And this is a character that's kind of taken over the show. And it doesn't really say or do much except just sit there, look cute, and sip tea. But um, this character's kind of taken off on the internet and stuff. And so one of my favorite holiday memes was this. This is me December 1st, because we're all excited and joyful, it's almost Christmas, but then this is me December 31st. (laughs) So some of you might feel that way, I hope not, I hope not. But I think the, uh, the year was 1987, I think I was 10 years old, and I was in my uncle's house. And on his coffee table, there was this magazine, and the cover story of the magazine said, only 13 years until the year 2000. And as a 10-year-old kid, I started thinking, man, that sounds like so futuristic. What is that going to be like, the year 2000? And then, now here we are, and it's the new year, and it's 2020, and I still don't have a flying car yet. (laughs) And so, whenever we look into the future, I know many of us have expectations of what it's going to be like, and the future arrives, and it's not quite what we expected it to be. And so I thought we'd have a little bit of fun this morning. It's the new year. And so I found this list of expectations. These are things that people thought would come true by the year 2020, but they obviously have not. And these are not just anybody. These are like scientists, intellectuals, doctors predicted these things way back when. So here's the first. This will be a countdown, top 10. Number 10, we'll have personal helicopters, all right? That's one. Can you imagine your teenage son borrowing the helicopter to take his girlfriend to the prom? I don't think so. And then number nine, we'll have flying houses. So not flying cars, but close. And then number eight, mail be sent via rocket. That'd be kind of interesting. And then number seven, We will have both telepathy and teleportation, if you assuming you know what those things mean. And then number six, is this working? Oops. Eating will no longer be necessary. (laughs) Now, now, Chase did talk about fasting last week, so I'll remind you of that. And then number five, everyone will be a vegetarian, which is really the same thing as not eating, (laughs) right? And then number four, this next one made the last service really angry. We'll see if it does to you as well. No one will drink coffee or tea. Did I hear some Aggies hiss? I heard an Aggie hiss on that one, so that that deserves an Aggie hiss for sure. And uh, this actually was predicted by someone that you might know the name of. This is a quote by Nikola Tesla who said, within a century, coffee, tea, and tobacco will will no longer be in vogue. The abolition of stimulants will not come about forcibly. It will simply no longer be fashionable to poison the system with harmful ingredients. Plus, it stains your teeth, right? And then number three, 
we'll have robots as therapists. Glad that's not true. My wife will be out of work. And then number two, nobody will work and everyone's going to be rich. So maybe this is the year for that. Last service, this little kid was like, yay. And I'm like, be quiet. You don't even want to work yet, you know? And then my personal favorite, number one, women will be all be built like wrestlers. <laughs> somebody predicted this, and somebody's smart, too. Don't get that one at all. So um, there you go. Happy New Year to you. Um, but it's true. Everyone looks at the future with certain expectations, and many times they go unmet. And the last few months we've been talking about the story of Abraham. At the center of their lives, there's this huge unmet expectation. And it's been 25 years since God promised a son. And in all the waiting, you remember the story, they took matters into their own hands. Sarah gives her maidservant Hagar to Abraham. They have Ishmael. And you know how the story has continued since then. So they bear Ishmael. And then now Ishmael is 14 years old. And so we come to Genesis chapter 21 here in the story, and really today's passage is a celebratory passage on the front end, because Isaac is finally born. The promise has finally come to fruition. And it's really a great, I think, New Year's passage. It kind of represents renewal and rebirth. And so we're looking at Genesis 21, starting in verse 1. It says, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom whom Sarah bore bore him, Isaac. And Abraham Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said... God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So what a moment in the life of Abraham and Sarah. So 25 years earlier. So was anybody in here exactly 25 years old? Raise your hand. I don't see any hands. There's no, even if there's not, there's the one back there. So, but as, as old as you are, so 25 years old, this is exactly how long it's been since the problem, promise was made to Abraham and Sarah until it comes to fruition. For, for 25 years, their, their womb has been empty. And so God promises a son, and now he's finally here. And remember, Abraham is how old? He's 100 years old. If somebody makes it to 100 today, they get a news story. Abraham got a newborn at 100. Can you imagine what that would be like, chasing a toddler at like 102, 103 years old? Most of you guys can't imagine that at 40 or 45, right? And so they get this newborn, this baby Isaac, and they've waited so long for this baby to show up. And we've talked about this before in previous weeks, but why did God wait so long to give them the fulfillment of this promise? We saw in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 12, where it says about Abraham that it says he was as good as dead. Abraham was as good as dead when 
Isaac was finally born. And I think this happened because the reason why God waited so long is God wants him to know it's only through his power, only through his miraculous intervention that this miracle can take place. And we know that having a child at that age is a miracle, but there's a whole string of miracles in this story. And we see some here in this passage here. And I'm not trying to be too graphic, but at their age, I mean, doing the thing that makes a baby would be a miracle. Conceiving would be a miracle. Giving birth would be a miracle. But in verse 7, it tells us Sarah has to nurse, and she's 90. There's a whole string of miracles in this story. And we've been seeing the, the theme of laughter all through the story, and it finally culminates here at the birth of Isaac. His name means he laughs, and there are, there are many different kinds of laughter. Many of you can think about friends that you have. Um, if you're talking to a friend, there's, there's lots of different kinds of laughter, right? You're sitting with a friend, and the way they laugh at you or with you indicates what situation that you're in. So there's all kinds of different kinds of laughter, And so throughout the story, so far we've been seeing different kinds of laughter. When God promised a son, Abraham and Sarah, they laughed, but it was more the scoffing kind of laughter. It was the, yeah, right, I'll believe it when I see it. It was a questioning. It was a laughter of disbelief. But now their laughter is different. Now the scoffing laughter has turned into a laughter of praise. And as her physical pain brings forth Isaac, her emotional pain gives birth to laughter. Now it's a, can you believe that God did this kind of laughter? All they can do is shake their head and laugh at what God has done and what God has pulled off. And when other people hear about it, they're going to have the same reaction. And I think for us, sometimes this is all that you and I can do whenever God does his work. We can just look at the situation and shake our head and laugh at what God has pulled off. I think about just some of the people that, that we have here in our body that I've heard their stories and they know my story. And we can look at our own salvation and just, it's a laughter of praise. Look what God did with this person's life. I mean, for some of us in the room, your Saturday nights may have been, like way in the past, maybe were kind of rough or you couldn't even find yourself in a place like this on Sunday morning. But now you're the ones that are teaching kids back there in the back. You're the ones teaching youth. You're the ones that are working in CR. You're, you're doing things in the body of Christ because God has done a great work in and through you, through his Holy Spirit. And you've changed. And all you can do is just look at the situation and laugh and say, if someone says, how is it or why are you a Christian? All you can do is say, it's just him. He gets the glory. And you just have a laughter of praise. And so God has turned some of us in the room, our laughter of scoffing into a laughter of praise. This is exactly what he did for Abraham and Sarah. When God first promised a son, they laughed because they were afraid to hope. Because hope has a way of making us vulnerable. Many people don't allow themselves to hope because doing so might mean disappointment. I think we've all experienced this. That we're afraid to hope because hope might mean that it doesn't come through and that we're disappointed 
And so it's best just not to hope at all. Hope has a way of making us feel vulnerable. There's a vulnerability to it. There's a scene in Shawshank Redemption where the character Andy, played by Tim Robbins, who's there in the cafeteria of the prison with Red, played by Morgan Freeman, and Andy starts talking about hope because he's new to the prison. And then Red looks him right in the eye and he says, let me, he says, let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. And I think a lot of us feel that vulnerability with hope. We do. Like I personally, those that know me well would say that this is true about me. Like I personally struggle with pessimism. And it's not just because I'm a Redskins fan. All right? But I struggle with that. You know, some people are glass half full and some are glass half empty. And sometimes for me, I'll get so negative, there isn't even a glass anymore, right? And it's why I love my wife because she's a, a great therapist for me. And I love surrounding myself with people who have greater faith than I, I have sometimes because we need people in our lives like that if we struggle with those kinds of things. But it's easier to just scoff and laugh, laugh it off, because, and just say things like, yeah, that'll never happen. That'll be the day. I love that Chase challenged us last week to fast and pray every Monday in January, because our prayer life is a great barometer of where our hope lies. And so as we invite you into this time of prayer on Mondays throughout January, I want to ask you a couple of questions to be thinking about. Does our prayer life reveal that we aren't afraid to hope? Are you afraid to pray for some of the things that Chase talked about last week? I think we can say that prayer and hope are are really tied together pretty closely. And what are you afraid to hope for? For fear you might be disappointed. So does our prayer life reveal that we aren't afraid to hope. And then secondly, will our lives reflect the reality that God keeps his word? You see, in this passage, three times we see the statement, as God said or as he promised. And it might sound obvious or cliche, but you and I can trust what God says. We really can trust what God says, that he will do what he says he's going to do. How does it affect us when when people don't keep their word? How does it affect you and your relationships when people don't keep their word with you? Well, you start to not trust them. And then it leads to you not trusting other people because you think maybe they're going to be the same way. And then all that relational doubt starts to bleed over into your relationship with God, you start to question God and say, well, God, how do I know that I can trust you? But we look at God's word and we can acknowledge that all throughout his word, we see that God keeps his word. He keeps his promises. It may not come through in the time that we think it needs to come through on, but God is a God that keeps his promises. And so we can trust that and have faith in that. I want you to look down at verse eight. As we look at the story, it it starts to take a, a dark turn. 
It says, and the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now today we throw baby showers or gender reveal parties, which I still don't get. But in that day, they would throw a weaning party when the child turned two or three years old because when you're 90 and nursing, you would absolutely celebrate that, right? The end of that. And so at this party, Sarah looks over and she sees Ishmael laughing because there's that theme of laughter once again in this story. And most commentators think that this is a mocking form of laughter, that Ishmael is mocking Isaac. And Ishmael, remember, he's a 14-year-old. He's a He's kind of a punk at this point, right? And so he is looking down at his little brother and he's mocking his little brother Isaac. And Sarah turns and he gets a little, she gets a little bit angry and she goes to Abraham and she says, you've got to get rid of these two. You've got to send these two away. Now it's been 14 years and Sarah hasn't changed all that much. You see, there are so many parallels with Genesis chapter 16 in this story. We, we preached on this a few weeks ago in the, in the sermon, The God Who Sees, in Genesis chapter 16. Remember, Sarah gives Hagar to Abraham, and then Hagar gets pregnant, and then Sarah mistreats Hagar, and Hagar flees off into the desert, but then God shows up because God sees her affliction, and then God does something surprising in that, in Genesis chapter 16. God tells her to go back to Sarah and Abraham. God sends her back. And so she returns, and she has the child, and now it's been 14 years. And for all this time, just think about this for a minute, Sarah mistreated Hagar, so Hagar runs off into the desert, and now she comes back, and it's been 14 years that she's been serving. She's been obedient to God and serving, Hagar, or serving Sarah, even though Sarah mistreated her. And now Sarah turns on her again, And this time she wants Abraham to do something about it. If you look at verse 11, we see that Abraham is torn. The word there is displeased, which in the Hebrew means evil. Abraham thinks his whole plot is evil. I mean, Ishmael is his own son. I mean, I understand he's got to think in his mind, I know that my, that that Hagar or that Sarah is upset and jealous and all of that, but but Ishmael is my own son. Like when he looks at Ishmael, he sees his own likeness. And so the thought of him sending his own son off into the wilderness with Hagar is something that he sees as just sheer evil. And so you can imagine the torment that Abraham's in. He sees the jealousy of Sarah, but he also understands the plight of Hagar. 
Now, so far in the story, everyone's reactions are highly predictable. I mean, you can see it coming. You can see Sarah's jealousy. That's predictable. You can see um, Ishmael's mocking laughter. That's predictable. You can see Abraham's reaction, his distress. It's all predictable. The one thing that's not predictable is God's reaction to it all. We would expect God to do what he did in Genesis chapter 16. We would expect God to say, no, you're going to stay and you're going to work it out. In Genesis 16, that's what he does. But in this story, God does something a little bit different. God does something surprising here in this story. This time, God tells Abraham in verse 12, he says, Abraham, listen to your wife. Do what she's asking you to do. And you can think through Abraham's response. He's probably thinking, that's kind of what got us into this mess. But God says, no, listen to your wife. I've got this under control. I've got a plan. And so in verse 12, we don't expect God to tell Abraham to listen to his wife and to do what she's asking him to do. And then what's more, look what Abraham gives them before they go. What does he give them? He gives them bread and a skin of water. In that day, they might take the stomach of a goat, take it out, and use that for a skin of water as they travel. And so that's all he gives his son, Ishmael, and, his, and Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, gives them a piece of bread and a skin of water and sends them off into the wilderness. Now, you remember the story of Abraham. He's a wealthy man at this point. If you look back in Genesis 20, he's been given lots and lots of livestock. He can afford to give a lot more than what he's given Hagar and Ishmael. I mean, this is his son that he's sending off into the wilderness with nothing but bread and water. And listen, there's a, there's a lot of really hard things in this story. And on the surface, it can start to look like this is God's fault. And we can start to feel the tension of the story, the story of, that they're walking through here. But I want, you, I want to remind you who created this mess. This was Sarah and Abraham's mess. And this was them. They sinned together. And I think we can learn a few things here. When we take matters into our own hands, other people are going to get hurt. Hagar and Ishmael are getting trampled on, and it's not right, but that's not God's fault. I think we can look at the story and, and we can start to almost blame God and ask questions like, God, how can you do, how can you allow this to happen? How can you agree with Sarah that this is what should happen to Ishmael and Hagar? But if we look closely at the story, I think we can still see that God's grace is at work in this awful situation. You might say it like this, sometimes God's grace operates in ways that we cannot see. Sometimes God intervenes and it's going to look harsh, but it's really his grace redeeming our mess, the mess that we've made of things. You see, God's trying to keep his promise to Abraham and Sarah, which they don't deserve, by the way. 
God's trying to keep his promise to Abraham and Sarah about this son, Isaac, that's going to come, the promised one. And they don't deserve that promise to be fulfilled. But God's also trying to make the best of a bad situation for Ishmael and Hagar. God is trying to do what is best for Ishmael and Hagar. I love how Griffith Thomas says this, God was taking up the tangled threads of a servant's life and weaving them into his own divine pattern and overruling everything for good. This must be what Joseph meant when he said to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And so God in his sovereignty, in his sovereign plan, he was taking up all the loose ends, all the mess that Sarah and Abraham had created for themselves and understanding that Hagar and Ishmael are simply the benefactors of their sin and God's making the best of a bad situation. And so we see God's fingerprints of his invisible grace all over the story as he's trying to provide, keep his fulfillment of the promise to those that don't even deserve it, at the same time protecting and providing for Hagar and Ishmael. So, so far, everything in this story just begs the question, if this were a movie, if we're sitting and watch this play out on a movie screen, everything in us would be saying, no, 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 this is not the way this should be going. This feels unjust. But let's read on in the next verse, verse 15. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up and lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt." So Hagar in the scene, she's just really desperate and doesn't know where to turn. And all she can see are her outside circumstances. She's waiting for them both to die. And so she, she is so distraught and so desperate that she sets her son down, who's 14 years old, in one spot in the wilderness and then she walks away, several hundred yards away from him, because she can't bear the thought of her son, her offspring Ishmael, dying. She can't watch it. And so things are that desperate. I'll remind you that in this story, the last time she left in Genesis 16, she left of her own accord, but then God sent her back. This time, Abraham has sent her away, and so now she knows it's final. And she sees no way out. And she is desperate. And she doesn't know where to turn. 
And she thinks in her mind, you can imagine that the last 14 years are just kind of flashing before her eyes as she sees what's about to happen. And there are so many close parallels to Genesis chapter 16 because here she is again in the wilderness and there's nowhere to turn. And in this moment of desperation, she lifts up her voice and she's weeping. And just like before, God hears and God shows up. And it says an angel from heaven calls to her saying, what troubles you, Hagar? Now, what kind of question is that? Does she really have to explain? But remember what question God asked her back in Genesis 16. In Genesis 16, when she's on the run, God shows up and asks her the question, where have you come from and where are you going? You remember the Cotton Eye Joe song we talked about? But God has a way of showing up when someone's kind of on the run and asking them a question. Does the same thing with Adam and Eve in the garden. Just ask a question. And here he asks a question. Why does God do that? I think he's trying to get her to stop. Just pause. Pause for a moment so I can speak to you. You're in desperation and in distress, and I want, I want you just to stop and think and pause so I can speak into this situation. So God wants her to stop so that she can hear from him. And I know that as we look at this, this story, there's so much about it that seems really harsh, but if we look closely, we can start to see something that I think is really profound. We can start to see the invisible grace of God at work, even in a really difficult story in the Bible. We can see God's invisible grace at work in this story. You see, because God, God sends Hagar and Ishmael away from Abraham and Sarah so that Isaac can be the heir. And of course, this is a grace to Abraham and Sarah because they, of course, don't deserve that. But it's also a grace to Hagar and Ishmael because God's sparing them of further conflict. And then look how God provides for Hagar and Ishmael. The, the real reason why Abraham didn't give them much as hard as it is to say, is because God shows up and tells Abraham, he goes, I'm gonna provide for them. I'm gonna provide for them. And so Abraham sends them on their way, and now Hagar and Ishmael are in the wilderness, and God shows up and reminds Hagar of a promise he made to her the last time she was here. He says, Do not fear because I've heard your cry. Remember, this is the God who sees. This is the God who hears. The name Ishmael means God hears. So God shows up once again and says, remember who I am. I'm the God who sees, the God who hears. And just like I made a promise to Abraham and Sarah, God also made a promise to Hagar about Ishmael back in Genesis chapter 16. And you see, she has forgotten the promise. And God shows up and he says, go get your son, I'm gonna make him into a great nation as well. And so through years of desperation and turmoil, you can imagine as she's sitting here in the wilderness, 
that 14 years have gone by and she's thinking through in her mind, listen, I was taken from Egypt by Abraham and Sarah, taken to this other land I didn't know anything about, taken as a maidservant, been serving Sarah all these years, taken by Abraham as a temporary wife. I have Ishmael. And so I start, I start to envision a future for myself and my son. But now all that's being taken away. And she's just in a place of desperation and distress. And you can imagine in her, in her mind that she's not predicting the ending that God's talking about right now. When God shows up and says, I'm going to make him into a great nation. Just trust me, I'm going to provide for you. She's thinking, I could not have predicted that ending. Because this is the invisible grace of God at work. And then for Sarah and Abraham, it's been 25 years, but all the while, God's invisible grace has been interlaced throughout their story. He's been at work the entire time. And in verse, look down at verse 19 once again. There is this powerful scene where God provides a well of water. And it reminds me of a story in John chapter four where Jesus is by this well in Samaria and a woman shows up. And you know her story. She's lived this immoral life and she's ashamed and she's isolated. And she comes to draw water at this well But then Jesus shows her where she can find true living water, and it's in himself. And in many ways, Hagar's situation is similar because she's ashamed, she's isolated, not because of her sin, but because of Abraham and Sarah's sin. But then God gives her a way out. God gives her provision in this well that he provides for her. And look down again at verse 19. It says, God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. Now, does that mean that the well just magically appeared? I don't think that's what it means. I think what it means is that she was so desperate and so destitute that she wasn't able to see God's provision that was right in front of her. It was invisible to her. And notice in the passage, it says, God opened up her eyes. That means that she couldn't even see it until God acted and allowed her to see it. And I think there's a a really powerful image here of the gospel for you and I. Because you and I cannot see the provision that we have in Jesus Christ until he opens up our eyes to see it. And so here she is in this moment, and she is so distraught and in such distress that she can't even see the thing that God has put right in front of her until God allows her to see it. I think that God's grace is at work in ways in our lives that we cannot even see until he opens up our eyes to see it. Because you and I get so focused on our situation or our distress and we miss the provision that he often has right in front of us and it's him. He is the living water. J. 
Chase uh, said this last week, and this is the most obvious thing I'm going to say all morning, but 2019 was a really difficult year for all of us. And I know that we all felt it, and you all know that. But I really do believe that there are some ways that God's grace was still at work in ways that we can't even see. And I believe that. So maybe 2020 is the year that we begin to see that, that he is our provision. And that he's been here the whole time. And I just pray that he'd open up our eyes so we could see that. So I want to ask you a couple of questions. What are some ways that God's invisible grace has been at work over this last year for you? And what are some ways that you'll pray for his grace to be at work throughout 2020 in your lives? Kent Hughes says, the truth is, without affliction and hardship, we'd be trivial, superficial, flat-sided beings, people without depth or substance with shallow faith. And this truth is a life-changing revelation when taken to heart. God works in and through the vicissitudes of life to mature our faith. I want to pray for you this morning. God, we just thank you for your grace. God, we know that there are the ways we think about grace, the obvious ways that you sent your son Jesus here on this earth to live in our place and to die a death on our behalf. And he was resurrected so we can have life. God, those are the obvious ways that we think about grace. But there's also many ways in our lives that you, as you write our stories, that you are weaving in all kinds of invisible graces that we can't even detect. God, I pray that you would give us the faith just to know that those things are there and that you're just as involved in those situations as you are in the more obvious ones. God, I pray for uh, the people in this room that might be questioning and doubting and wondering where you are or if you're there at all, I pray that they would be able to see and have the faith that you'd open up their eyes to see the provision that is right in front of them and it is you, you are living water. And God, I pray that we would see that today and worship you as a result of that truth, Father. We pray this in your name, amen.